Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Big problems become big problems when you let small problems sit. That is correct. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, October 29th, 2020. You can be listening to this anytime because it's a podcast. So if you're listening to 10 years from now, you're going to want to know, hey, Ben, what was the headlines? Well, I'll tell you. Back for the future. That's the headline in the Chicago Tribune. The Chicago White Sox hired Tony LaRusso as their manager. He's 76 years old. I'm so old. I remember him when he was young and when he was first hired by the White Sox. That's how old I am. Uh, my next guest is very young at heart. <laughs> and uh, as I do with all distinguished guests on the Ben Jarofsky Show, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Good afternoon, Ben. This is Susan Klonsky, and I'm talking to you from beautiful Logan Square in yes. Chicago. Very good. That's Susan Klonsky, writer, editor, uh, mother of Joanna Klonsky, who the very <laughs> noted uh, uh, political strategist in the city of Chicago, frequent guest on my show, wife of Michael Klonsky, a computer genius. And in, in addition to being an activist, figured out how to make this computer work. We're not going to tell you the backstory, ladies and gentlemen, of the struggles that Susan and I had, two boomers trying to figure this thing out. And I guess you're the sister-in-law, Fred Klonsky, Fred the Hammer Klonsky, uh, great activist, union activist, uh, sending out all my good vibrations to Fred's going in for an operation in a week. So let's just pause to send excellent vibrations to Fred. Excellent. Absolutely. Oh, man, I just feel it. I know it's going to work. All right. Um, So the reason I invited Susan to come on the show is because I'm utterly obsessed these days. People know this who listen to the show and read my column with uh, the movie, The Chicago 7, Aaron Sorkin's movie, uh, and its critique of what went down or its telling of what went down with the conspiracy trial. Uh, back in Chicago in 6970, when the federal government decided uh, to throw salt on a wound, make things even worse than they'd already made them by charging uh, eight and later down to seven activists with conspiring to riot as a result of what went down in the 1968 Democratic Convention. I thought it'd be a really good idea to talk to somebody who was actually at the Democratic Convention in 1968, though not as a delegate, uh, and was around Chicago uh, and very involved politically back in 69 when the trial was going on. And uh, Susan, it was either Susan or Mike Klonsky, one or the other. Mike's been on the show before. I said, let's get Susan on the show. So, Susan, why don't good you choice. Uh, t- good choice? Yes, thank you. I think it was a good choice. <laughs> Although I have to say nice things about Mike because he fixed the computer. Yeah. All right. Um, take us back in time. 1968. Uh, give us a little introduction to who you are and uh, what you were doing in Chicago and just sort of what the scene was like uh, sure. with 
Chicago activists. Go ahead. Well, the scene in Chicago when I was, this is the summer I was 20 years old. Wow. So a sweet young thing. And I was immensely pregnant with our first child. So I was not actually physically present at the demonstrations, which are depicted in the movie, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, because um, I was waddling around at that point. However, I was here in Chicago along with my husband because he was elected to one of the positions of leadership of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, which was at that time headquartered in Chicago and was the largest of the various organizations of students and others protesting and opposing the war in Vietnam. Um, And the Democratic National Convention uh, took place in the end of August of 1968. And it was roughly two and a half months after the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy and about five months, four or five months after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. So there had been great upheaval in the city and in the country going on for months and months. Things were very tense here. And as you must recall, we had at that time the real Mayor Daley, old man Daley, was in charge. He famously got up on the floor of the Democratic National Convention when uh, Connecticut Senator Abraham Ribicoff was speaking and yelled out, shut up, you effing Jew. Mm-hmm. And it's actually recorded, the archival footage of that moment is recorded in the movie by Aaron Sorkin. And if you watch his lips, you can see what he's saying, and it's unequivocal. Mm-hmm. It was a wild time in the city. All right. Now, Susan, let me ask you this question. This is something I'm going to try to put uh, the mindset of someone in 2020 mm-hmm. back into 1968. And I know it won't work, but we'll try it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, why protests? Why not just accept the fact that uh, Hubert Humphrey is the lesser of two evils in the mm-hmm. race for presidency mm-hmm. against uh, Richard M. Nixon, who is the Republican, and George Wallace, who is running as sort of a pre-Trump Trumpster white supremacist segregationist so why not just put aside the differences that you as a lefty have with uh hubert horatio humphrey and just support humphrey and the democratic ticket well actually the democratic party was a war party at that time they weren't they in fact the vietnam war's roots lay in the kennedy in the kennedy administration in the Six, in the early 60s, that was when our first U.S. military advisors got, began being sent to Vietnam. And the troop build, the biggest troop buildup that had happened occurred under the administration of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the uh, president who succeeded Kennedy at, following Kennedy's assassination in November of 1963. We believed, and as did millions of Americans, that this was an unjust war, an unnecessary war, a destructive war, both in terms of the cost to the people of Vietnam and the rest of Southeast Asia, but the cost to the American people 
in terms of what the Republicans like to call blood and treasure. In the sum total of the Vietnam War, over 3 million Vietnamese people were killed. And I believe it's just south of 60,000 American soldiers. And people were being drafted into the war, which Sorkin depicts, I think, very well in the movie as one of the motivations for people to protest the war. Um, and it was chewing them up and spitting them out. It was unwinnable. And the reason was because it was unjust. And it was, and they, and they were um, really waging indiscriminate bombings of uh, densely populated civilian areas. It was a war of genocide against the Vietnamese people. So what American of any decency could see that and not want to put a stop to it, both to protect their own kids from getting chewed up in it and to stop at our stature in the world and our relationships with former allies and the potential for, con for military conflagration with the other superpower, the, at that time the Soviet Union, were very, very dangerous and fraught. And there was nothing good that could come from it, only bad. And Humphrey was quite an equivocator about it. Eugene McCarthy, George um, McGovern, and other uh, Democratic contenders opposed it and wanted to call it, or said they opposed it, wanted to call a halt to it, wanted to draw down troops, wanted to stop the aerial bombings. And um, so there were those within the anti-war movement that would have taken a less, would have taken and uh, supported anybody but Humphrey. But um, the main thing was pro not protesting wasn't an option. It just uh, was not. Now, uh, I've heard uh, interviews uh, with uh, uh, older lefties and read mm -hmm. interview, uh, interviews, about, uh, mm -hmm. which the newspaper interviews. And I'm thinking of, um, I think I heard Joe Klein, uh, the writer, say this. Mm -hmm. Heather Booth, who's been on the show, and I know she's a mm -hmm. friend of yours, mm -hmm. uh, has said this. They recall back in 1968, when they were very young and against the war and protesting, that they could not bring themselves to vote for Hubert Humphrey, the uh, ultimate uh, Democratic nominee. And so they mm -hmm. voted for Dick Gregory, a Chicago comedian who was running as an anti-war third-party activist. Uh, now they regret it. They say well, they wish they had voted for Humphrey. I've heard several people say this. Do you, what's your thoughts about that? Do you have any regrets looking back that you did not support Hubert Humphrey in the 68 election? Do you share Joe Klein's sentiment on that point? You know, I don't have any idea whether I shared Joe Klein's point of view on anything. I think that <laughs> that's the truth. But I do think that it was a different period. It was a period of tremendous revolt against the Democratic Party status quo at that point. Don't forget, this was, the, this was a time of um, revolt in, all, in all, every major city in the United States, in the black communities. There was immense uh, police misconduct and tremendous repression against uh, black civil rights organizations and revolutionary organizations, and people felt that if a candidate couldn't take a stand against that, then they were capitulating to it. So 
I was too, you know, the, the, I don't think I could vote. I know I never did cast a ballot in those days. And t- but my first vote ever was when uh, Harold Washington ran for mayor in the city of Chicago. That was my first campaign that I actively participated in. So you can take that as youthful, I don't know, political immaturity, lack of sophistication, seeing everything in black and white. I don't know. But how can you regret it? That's who we were. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm almost really stunned. This yeah, that now. was that. This is <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> By the way, the greatest mayor the city of Chicago's ever had, that would be Absolutely. Harold Washington, elected in 1983 and reelected in 87. Yes, too. I share your, uh, if anyone, if anyone could take a lefty like Susan Kolonsky and get her to participate in electoral politics, it would be the great Harold Washington. All right, now let's let's go back and uh, raise, I'll ask you a question that's raised from uh, dialogue in the movie, Aaron Sorkin's movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the movie, uh, a couple of, like, I think it's a, an exchange between uh, Abby, the Abby Hoffman character and the Tom Hayden character. By mm-hmm. the way, I'm, I'm going to be freely... Uh, Talk about what went down in the movie, ladies and gentlemen. So if you haven't seen the movie, this is just a warning. Yeah, neither Susan or I are going to censor ourselves because you haven't gotten it together to see the freaking movie. All right. So uh, in that exchange, I uh, I think it's the character who plays Tom uh, Hayden, activist Tom Hayden, Mm -hmm. opines that if Bobby Kennedy had not been killed, and if he had still been around uh, and was the Democratic nominee, none of the violence would have occurred. The police would not have pounded the crap out of the protesters because, as he says, I think he says, one, the Irish would have called the Irish. I think that's the line that they use in the movies. Uh, when you go back and you think about what was going down in the country back then, it's Susan Klosky, do you think it would have made a difference had Robert Kennedy not been killed and had been the actual nominee as opposed to Hubert Humphrey? It it may have, but I think it's an idle question. Um, Tom Hayden, by the way, who was, you know, a brilliant political analyst, was very close to and devoted to Robert Kennedy. And uh, there there were those in the movement who attributed almost godlike or divine uh, (laughs) characteristics to Robert Kennedy. And he certainly had the charisma that Hubert Humphrey completely lacked, but I don't know, and it doesn't matter, really, because because um, we won't know, we can't answer that question. Did I lose you here? No, I'm here. I'm Did thinking about what, what you're oh, saying. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm listening carefully to what you're saying. I, I, there's a fantasy that exists uh, among uh, many Democrats mm-hmm. who are roughly your age, that somehow or other we lost great potential. And I, I struggle with that fantasy uh, because I'm, I, li- I grew up in a house filled with lefties. I was surrounded by lefties my entire life, Susan. And I don't know one lefty who ever said anything good about any Kennedy, okay? Uh, until after the Kennedys were gone and it was almost like they were uh, missing them. So I just wonder if you ever feel like a moment had passed in 68 in which like different strands of the democratic party could have come together uh, and forged a better future. Uh, well, you know, as I hate, I, I'm the last person in the world to quote Hillary Rodham Clinton, but I think the phrase coulda, woulda, shoulda is apt here. Who knows? Mm. 
I mean, I really don't. I think you can see that uh, there are those who feel that Senator Ted Kennedy played a really important um, opposition role and progressive role within the um, Congress for the years that he survived. And so maybe that's true. But it again, I think it's immaterial to the discussion and certainly is not a role in the movie itself by Aaron Sorkin, except when a couple of characters allude to the fact that that the loss of Robert Kennedy propelled them to the left, made them feel more radically inclined because he was like their last best hope mm -hmm. that someone inside the Democratic Party would take a stand, um, a meaningful stand against the war and uh, for righting the social injustices that pervaded the country. All right. Uh, so uh, going back to 1968, uh, as uh, I was mentioned earlier, uh, Mayor Daley uh, had the Chicago police really just beat the crap out of protesters. Yeah. Uh, and then they doubled down. <laughs> uh, instead of uh, prosecuting the police for beating the crap out of uh, protesters, uh, they prosecuted the protesters or the leaders of the protest uh, for inciting a riot. Uh, Susan, talk a little bit about that uh, well, when the sure. indictments against the activists. Go ahead. Well, first of all, it wasn't for incite, uh, just for inciting a riot. It was for conspiring mm -hmm. to incite a riot and for crossing state lines for that purpose, which made it like a much more serious and potentially much heavier sentence if convicted. The minimum, I believe, for a, for conviction for conspiracy was an additional 10 years, and for crossing state lines was a whole bunch of more hard time. And it was, a, it was this was very, very serious, and it was very scary, and it was designed, I think, and thought then, to put the kibosh on militants' opposition to the war in what, what by then was expanding to, south, to all of um, Southeast Asia, including Laos and Cambodia. It was very um, much designed to intimidate. It, it had the, the, the eight people who were originally included in the indictment, because as you know, one of the indicted was, had his case separated from the rest. That was Bobby Seale, uh, one of the founders of the Black Panther Party. But of, the, of all eight of them, um, there were a couple of them who were university professors, a pacifist, a couple of student leaders from different sections of the movement. They tried to, but they tried to hit a bunch of the uh, major constituencies that they thought made up the anti-war movement of, of that period. And um, it was designed to have a severe chilling effect on the opposition. I don't think it was successful, but it, say, yeah. it sure, it sure uh, gave pause to people in leadership to, um, for a period of time. It, it was, I think it was a scary time. And fortunately, there were people who stood up, and there, some of them are depicted in the film for, for something like the roles that they played in um, discrediting the mm -hmm. indictment.
Now, did you uh, back then in 69 ever show up at the at the trial? No. After after those events in the fall of um, the year, we um, moved back to California for for quite some time. So we weren't here when the actual trial was taking place. And um, we had we had left. We, uh, to back up, I want to say that the people in leadership of SDS were all being routinely stalked, tailed, followed, staked out, had our phones tapped by a notorious um, subset of the Chicago Police Department known as the Red Squad. Um, there was a big lawsuit against said Red Squad in the, uh, I, I'm going to get the year wrong. And I'm not going to Google it right now. But don't anyway, don't Google it. I'm not doing. I'm, not, I'm, I'm forcing myself not to look the data for the sake of historical accuracy because yeah. we're talking about a movie here. But the fact is, we were under tremendous pressure. Um, there were there was a lot of threats of violence. And um, anyway, we moved back to our home in California for a period of time. We came back. We didn't come back here for about. Uh, six or seven years after those events. So we weren't here during the trial. All right. Uh, one of uh, the, uh, my, I have many issues with the Aaron Sorkin movie mm-hmm. uh, about the way it rewrites history, but let's yeah. just deal with one thing you mentioned and how Aaron Sorkin presents it. You just, I agree with your interpretation uh, that the indictments were attempted to intimidate anti-war mm-hmm. activists and uh, scare people away from exercising their first amendment protected rights to protest yep. against their government. How about that? Yep. Uh, and, and uh, it was designed to designed to intimidate people. In the Aaron Sorkin movie, it's depicted as an attempt by then Attorney General uh, John Mitchell to get personal revenge against yes. his predecessor, Ramsey Clark. When I saw that, uh, Susan, that's when I started. The train started leaving the track for me in that Aaron Sorkin <laughs> movie. I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> to quote Joe Biden, you can't just rewrite history that way. Uh, what's your thoughts about that? Go ahead. On well, this particular think, instance, it's, go ahead. It's interesting. And as you say, this was not a documentary. This is a, uh, a, a work of art, a film, and a dramatic film. And while it's partially and loosely based in, in, on the transcripts of the trial and some of the events that took place at the trial, they didn't happen in the order in which they're depicted. They didn't necessarily happen at all in some cases. But I think what he was going for was to capture the viciousness of Attorney General Nixon's Attorney General John Mitchell. And, and yes, he was a personally spiteful and vengeful individual who did have it in for his predecessor, the Attorney General uh, Ramsey Clark, who, by the way, is still living. And um, yeah, I guess he's in his mid-90s, lives in Texas, I think, in Austin. Anyway, I, it, the movie prompted me to look him up because I had sort of forgotten about him. But anyway, the reason um, I find this interesting is because we had a very personal connection to Attorney General John Mitchell. Um and I'm really being careful not to use profanity on the air. He was a horrible person. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, of, one of his um, objectives was to immobilize and destroy 
um, the left, but in particular, he feared and loathed the Black Panther Party, hated SDS. We got a tip-off in the spring of that year that um, the, 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 the Attorney General's office was planning a raid on, the, on our office in Chicago, located at 1608 West Madison Street, right at the corner of Madison and Ashland, across from what is now the United Center when they're then. And um, that they were going to come in under some pretense or another. Uh, well, what they were looking for, nothing in particular, just to intimidate, and they, they did it. Um, my uh, husband, Michael Klonsky, and five or six other guys were ended up being arrested, beaten up and arrested um, in a joint action by the FBI and the Chicago uh, Police Department and the Fire Department, which used, um, which used the excuse that they had to come in because they had received a report that our building was on fire, which, of course, it wasn't. Um, this is a couple of months prior to the Democratic Convention, or... Yeah. And anyways, the, the point being, he was, he was interested and actively engaged in all kinds of plots and ploys to de basically decapitate any organizations of opposition to the Nixon administration, particularly about the war. And um, they had a whole program which was developed under the tutelage of J. Edgar Hoover, and it was called COINTELPRO. That stood, it was an acronym for counterintelligence program, and it was specifically aimed at identifying and immobilizing the leaders of the organizations of opposition, such as SDS, but certainly not limited to us or the Black Panther Party. And in the case of, and, and as this, as this, uh, as this um, plot, COINTELPRO, unfolded, under Mitchell's leadership. It included assassinations, and in particular, the most famous of them, the um, execution on December 4th of 1969 in Chicago of the chairman of the Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton, and the chairman of the Illinois Party, Mark Clark, while they were asleep in their beds on West Monroe Street, a few blocks from our office. Um, in a joint raid conducted by then Cook County State's Attorney Ed Hanrahan, Chicago Police, and the FBI. This was not kid stuff. They were not fooling around. They killed people. Um, so I take this John Mitchell very seriously. When those raids happened where our office was, where they took the doors off our office and took a bunch of people away, Michael Klonsky got bonded out the next morning and he said to the reporters, you know what, John Mitchell will be in prison before I'm back in jail. And sure enough, <laughs> John Mitchell did 19 months in the federal prison camp in, in uh, Alabama, convicted of all kinds of illegal activities related to the Watergate cover-up and other high crimes and misdemeanors. He's dead now. But, I mean, he was like the worst of the worst. Yeah. He's the opposite of justice. And, and yet so, he was in charge of the Justice He Department. was in charge, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you know what they say about charge when they decided to charge these eight people, these who organized what started out as nonviolent mass protests in front of the Democratic Convention. And I need to mention one other thing about old man Daly. Go ahead. So the movie depicts very well that people were chanting famously, the whole world is watching, Mm -hmm. which I think we can give credit for that that chant to great Chicago journalist and communications expert Don Rose. Mm -hmm. But the reason I mention it is Mayor Daley was worried that these demonstrations outside the Chicago convention were going to give Chicago a black eye a bad reputation. So to clean it up, to clean up its image, he decided to beat the crap out of everybody <laughs> protesting. Genius, right? Yeah. So that went well. <laughs> so I don't mean to laugh, but that is pretty funny the way you uh, yeah. uh, present that. Uh, by the way, everything you just said, Really great riff, by the way, Susan Klonsky. And uh, I got to give you a lot of credit for knowing exact amount of months that John Mitchell uh, served. I would not have been able to do that. I know he was uh, jailed, and I know uh, he was convicted, and I know he's up to no good in the Watergate mm-hmm. uh, uh, scandal, but I did not know it was 19 months, or that he was sentenced to federal prison in Alabama. Good God, you know your stuff. It's on but, a military base, but here's the relevant thing for today, and I think this is part of the thinking. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but I, if I were Aaron Sorkin, I'd be thinking, boy, I hope Attorney General Bill Barr watches this movie, and I hope he looks into what was the fate of John Mitchell. <laughs> yeah, I doubt very much uh, Bill yeah, Barr watched I don't watched think they learn from history. No, he doesn't want to learn from history. He's supposed to repeat history. Uh, and uh, I, I, I got to just tell you, respectfully disagree with you, when I... I feel because of that, uh, all the things that you uh, itemized on that uh, that great riff about John Mitchell that you just delivered, that uh, it was uh, it was uh, it, uh, unjust uh, for Aaron Sorkin to to sort of depict it as just like this personal vendetta, uh, thus missing the whole point of this the wider. Uh, the, the wider crackdown on civil liberties, uh, on the rights of everybody from uh, black activists to hippie demonstrators to SDS radicals to anybody who dared to support any of them. And it just to, just started to make it like it's like this personal vendetta. And here's the real story behind the scenes, kids, that you wouldn't have known. Uh, that, that was my first irritant, uh, Susan, when I saw that. The, yeah. the second one, which I'd love to get your response to, and I know it's—I know your—it's uh, not a documentary. You're absolutely correct. It's not a documentary. <laughs> I re, I will repeat that. You are right. It's not a documentary. Okay. But that part of, well, there's two other parts. The, the the speech between Hayden and Hoffman, which I've already alluded to, where Tom Hayden uh, is like finding his inner Rama manual as he accuses of Abby Hoffman. You know, he's speaking to Abby Hoffman the way Ram would speak to lefties that we meet from time to time. You can't stand them. Like, you're screwing it up for us. Don't you understand? We're going to lose swing voters in Wisconsin because you freaking hippies. You know what I mean? It's like, no one talked like that back then, Susan. Come on. No, no. You know? I don't know how old you are. <laughs> and I wasn't in the room where these conversations are alleged to have taken place. Yeah. But I know that there were people 
who are deeply afraid of appearing too militant, of scaring the middle away from the anti-war movement, of breaking up the fragile coalition that existed of all different kinds of groups and churches and um, PTAs and everything that were opposing the war at that time. There were, there were people who were very nervous about it and who, and, and, and Tom was certainly a more um, conservative type of an organizer than the very theatrical Abby Hoffman. They were philosophically different, but they, you know, they both wanted to draw attention to the crimes against humanity that were being committed and to, to force the Democrats to take a stand and to select a candidate who would oppose it. So, you know, I, I get what you're saying. There are a lot of things in the movie that are made up or imagined dialogue. Yeah. So many, it's hard to, and there are things that are depicted that, that we know did not occur in an attempt to dramatize the really perplexing situation in which these people found themselves. And there were things that did happen, including very heroic things that are not depicted that for my money, if I was making the film and I was the director or the screenwriter, I would have dramatized those. It doesn't matter. Does it capture the spirit of the moment and kind of give you the feel of what it was like to be out there and how scary and exhilarating it was? I think it does do that. It succeeds on some level at that. And so my, I've read, I've read like countless reviews and, <laughs> and yeah. emails and had phone calls with like my cousins in different <laughs> cities calling me and saying, did you see that movie yet? Should we bother to watch it? And, uh, you know, it's, it, and it's, and they are looking to me and my generation to like verify or authenticate this movie. I won't do that. I, I would say to them, it's a pretty entertaining movie. It captures a lot. It doesn't capture a lot. It misses a lot. The things didn't happen quite the way, or to any extent the way some of them are depicted in the movie. And yet, you could spend a lot of time making a list, frame by frame, of what was wrong, yeah. both in terms of dialogue and in terms of the order of events and the role of different personalities and where they stood politically. And did Tom Hayden really let the air out of a tire? And did this person really, you know, it, it, it doesn't, I, to me, that kind of misses the point. I think right. the guy's saying, you know, people were willing to risk a lot a lot and came from all over the United States, particularly young people who had nothing to do with and no way, no delegate credentials to get onto the floor of the Democratic Convention, but wanted to be part of this protest because they were so disappointed and disillusioned by the failure of the Democratic Party to take a stand against this war. All right. Uh, I, that was very well done. And <laughs> I must concede that you made some good points. But having said that, I have to ask you one last point before we leave this. Okay. The most outrageous piece of fabrication 
that I can think of in the movie, having nothing to do with letting air out of the tires, mm-hmm. uh, nothing to do with like a by chance encounter between mm-hmm. a couple of the defendants and the prosecutor mm-hmm. and f- at the field museum. None of all that. I understand you got it. Mm-hmm. It's all part of Hollywood is that moment, that courtroom scene that uh, the, ends the movie where the defendant, I think it's Rennie Davis character is reading the names mm-hmm. of dead American soldiers. It's mm-hmm. totally related to Donnie Trump saying that dead war, American war heroes are suckers and losers. Yeah. And it's joining them as they rise while the mm-hmm. judge is saying, sit down, is, yeah. uh, what's his name? Richard Schultz, the prosecutor. And he yeah. goes, I mu-. the other prosecutor, Ferran, says, what are you standing for? And he goes, I must honor the honor dead. The dead. Oh my the God, the, come the on, man. Come on, yes. Sorkin. This yes. is like too much now. No prosecutor. Man, Schultz was as bad as foreign, foreign or whatever his name is in terms of mistreating. All right. And so nobody was honoring anybody like that. And certainly the, uh, the prosecutors were not respecting the defendants in any way. So, Susan, I just have to hear your response to that particular scene. Go ahead. Well, I thought if it, if whether true or not, I thought it was a powerful ending for this, you know, dramatized and fictionalized tale. And I wish it were would have been that way, but it certainly was not. And there are many things that are out of order and upside down in this movie. There was a reading of the names of the fallen. And I would like to also add that they included yes. and alternated with the names of Vietnamese war dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were read, they were introduced at several different points in the course of the trial, mostly by the pacifist fellow uh, oh, co-conspirator Dave Dellinger mm-hmm. and he doesn't get his due in this movie Dave Dellinger was quite a consistent non-violent leader and in the movie he's depicted as uh, punching out a guard yeah. in the, a bailiff in the courtroom which I <laughs> not only it never happened but it's kind of defamatory and gratuitous there was no reason for that, I suppose it was meant to show that they had just pushed him one inch too far and he yeah. snapped, but he never did that. Um, and so the moment, there were moments when everyone in the courtroom rose in respect, Schultz not being one of them, by the way. And interestingly, right from the beginning of the movie, when Schultz gets called in with Foran into John Mitchell's office and gets told you're going to have a chance to make your career, make your reputation if you do this, if you run this trial. And, you, and they portray Schultz as if he's kind of reluctant and kind of skeezy about it, not sure it's such an uh, ethical idea. Like he has, he's just a regular guy with kids and mm-hmm. he doesn't really, they try and make him a very sympathetic character. I don't think he was. And just last week, this is kind of interesting, the, the Chicago chapter of the American Bar Association held a symposium at which Schultz, who's now in his mid-80s, gave a talk reminiscing about the trial in response to the movie. And he absolutely defends their trial strategy, and he says they had no choice but to bind and gag 
Bobby Seale because there had been a ruling from a higher court that no one who was on trial could be removed from the courtroom. So they had to keep him there, but they had to figure out a way to silence him. And so Judge Hoffman's attempt to silence him was to tie him up and put him in um, and and make it impossible for him to speak. And that is portrayed as having happened on the day after Fred Hampton was assassinated, which actually took place quite a few months later, you know, not until uh, early December of 1969, but it's made to look like, okay, they tied him up, they bound him, they put him in the courtroom, and 20 minutes later, they he was taken away, his case was dismissed, and he was out of the case. And, that, and none of that happened like that. He was actually, and even Schultz recounts this, Bobby Seale was held in the courtroom in shackles and with his mouth gagged for four full days in the courtroom mm, yeah and so it's kind of almost sanitized a bit mm. and that you know but like i say you could go through every frame of the movie and find things and if you were a person who was there at the time you could go well that didn't happen like that that didn't happen like that but i think that kind of misses the point the injustice of it was so shocking the racism of it was so blunt and flagrant and I think that at least comes across. And so for a young person watching it now, I think that's artistically, I would say that's not the crime of the century that Sorkin presented it like that. Well, no, I wouldn't say it's a crime of the century, uh, but I would say that it's uh, a cousin uh, <laughs> to uh, Donald Trump okay. and fake news. So, you know, I really believe uh, that Aaron Sorkin made that movie, in my humble opinion, to try to convince swing voters uh, to vote uh, for Joe Biden and against Donald Trump with the notion that there's something in America that binds us all, even if we have uh, philosophical dif differences, even if one of us is the prosecutor and the other us is the defendant. Deep down inside, we're all Americans and we all can see common ground. I think that's what his point was in making that movie. And uh, I, as much as I want those swing voters in Wisconsin to see that movie and go, oh, I really want to vote for Joe Biden. I'm sorry. I just can't deal with it, Susan, in this day of fake news. When Donald Trump calls press the, the enemy of the people, I just can't take it anymore. Well, you uh, won't, you won't get any argument from me about the dangerous, you know, implications of all of that of demonizing the press but also of demonizing defense attorneys of demonizing uh people who bring their grievances to the courts in search of redress yeah uh, everything trump is against and surely i'm sure that and at least in part sorkin was drawing the parallels to today but this isn't 1968 and the conditions are, are, I think, quite different, although the times are just as dangerous. And I think if he gives people a nudge and says, uh, what is the role of the attorney general in a time like this? That's a good thing. I'm okay with it.
All right, fair enough. We'll leave it at that. I always let my guests get the last word in on a, oh, yeah. any discussion or debate. That's just a policy in the Ben Jarofsky show. <laughs> We're going to close with this. We're going to ask, uh, since Susan's on a roll, giving critiques of movie. Uh, she just <laughs> recently saw Borat 2. She's a huge, she's right now wearing a I Love Borat 2 t-shirt. I wish lie, you could see that. Lie, <laughs> lie. Fake news. <laughs> it's really fake news. <laughs> no, she's not. I, she's not wearing an I Love a Borat 2 t-shirt. Uh, so I know you're uh, not really a, a fan of the kind of broad comedy uh, that Sasha Baron Cohen practices in the Borats. But what's your general thought about Borats? There's some parallels because obviously Sasha Baron Cohen played Abby Hoffman in the Chicago 7 movie. So what's your just general so, thoughts? So actually, I, I should say this. Part of the reason I wanted to see it is because I thought he was really good in the Chicago 7 movie playing the part of Abby Hoffman, um, who was, you know, a very theatrical individual and and also a very serious minded one. They all as they all were. And so I thought he was real good in that. And I really wanted to see what what happened with Rudy Giuliani in the Brad <laughs> 2 movie. And I could have just yeah. uh, fast forwarded it to the end. Um and it has its ups and downs, and I will guiltily confess <laughs> that I had some moments where I was laughing a little bit harder little than bit? I um, harder than I thought possible. And I'm not going to say anything else about it because I'm still kind of ashamed that I enjoyed it as much as I did, even though there were some really embarrassing and hideous moments in it, which. I can't understand why, but I just anybody who can who can embarrass Rudy Giuliani is okay in my book because he mostly embarrasses himself. Yes, so. that's well put. Uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, <laughs> Susan Concier, great sport to come on the show, uh, and uh, I want to thank you very much. And I want you to stay safe and sound and with you this too. pandemic. Uh, you and I are both getting up there in age, so let's, you know, no messing around, okay? And uh, hopefully there'll be an end to this, and let's hope there's an end to the other pandemic, the one yep. that took over the our White guys. House four years ago. Yeah. You agree with me on that? Um, for getting rid of both viruses. Both, yes. yeah, in one fell swoop. That's a great Susan Klonsky. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Thank you, Ben. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.